I'm Mariah M. and this is the Black Future Manifesto. Welcome everyone to this special episode of the Black Future Podcast. It is March and it's Women's History Month and we are giving you two episodes, yes two episodes this month. My co-host Micah Gilmer sat down with Nia West Bay and Marlene Mendoza, Senior Policy Analyst and Research Assistant for the Youth Policy Team respectively over at CLASP, the Center of Law and Social Policy in Washington, D.C. Frontline Solutions and CLASP partner with grant makers for girls of color to build a toolkit named Start from the Ground Up, increasing support for girls of color, designed to help those in the philanthropic world to better, here actually, support black girls and girls of color in the ways they need most. I'm super excited to get into this conversation as I couldn't be there for the recording. I hope you all learned as much and enjoyed it as much as I did. Take a listen. We're really excited to be joined by Nia West Bay and Marlene Mendoza here at Center for Law and Social Policy, or CLASP. So just tell us a little bit about CLASP and what you all do here. I can kick that off. So CLASP, for the Center for Law and Social Policy, is a 50-year-old anti-poverty advocacy organization in Washington, D.C. We do work across a range of issues that impact um, people living in poverty. So we have a team that focuses on child care and early education. We have a team focused on higher education, adult ed, and workforce development. We have a team focused on job quality, which is issues like paid family leave. We have a team that is focused on income and work supports, which deals with a lot of the public benefits that come from the government, as well as our team, which is the youth team. And we are unique at CLASP in that we're the only team that focuses on a population as opposed to a policy area. So our work intersects with and ranges a whole lot of the issues that our colleagues work on and that a number of partner organizations work on. And we always bring a very intentional race and gender equity lens to our work on the youth team here at CLASP. Awesome. So what does that mean in terms, in like real time? What is a project, what's a typical project for you all here at CLASP? If I had to say, I would say that usually we start with the, we center the voices of the youth and young adults. And so what we do is we, we tend to always make sure that we start there from the ground and listen to the issues and the problems that they're telling us from there, um, you know, and feel free to add on Nia. Um, but what I've seen is um, from there, then we use their voices and then so find supporting data. So one way we tend to um, do the, our work um, is that we always make sure to center youth voice, and we do that through multiple avenues. So through focus groups, through just peer interviews, or you know talking with our stakeholders um, from all different levels. And we start and we listen to what the young people are telling us because they know what the issues are. And where we come in is we help and use um, data-informed community-driven. Really, is that we take the data, but uh, uh, most times when we look at data, they're just you know they're numbers, and that's important. But we also want to humanize. Um, what's behind those numbers? What are the stories? What are the young people telling us behind what they're experiencing and that they're more than the statistic? And so we use their quotes, we use their voices, and we tend to integrate them in, in our policy work. And yeah, I think that's what I would say. And it's funny to have you ask about a typical project at class because I don't know that I have typical projects. I just work on a whole bunch of different kinds of things. So I have a big project right now that's focused on young adult mental health, which includes some of the types of things that Marlene was describing, doing focus groups with young people, sort of bringing that together with quantitative data and looking at um, then how that should inform policy, but also having conversations with leaders in state and local government. We are recruiting a group of folks in state and local government right now to come together in a learning community to focus on young adult mental health. 
had a similar project that was focused on two-generation state policy. They also brought together a bunch of states in the learning community to really make some positive changes in their policy to better serve whole families. Do all things data, qualitative, quantitative, all that kind of good stuff, as well as a body of work focused on young women of color, which I think we're going to talk about more. Yeah, we sure are. So the idea of starting with folks on the ground seems pretty intuitive to me. Like that's the people who are closest to the problem. They see it every day. They experience it. They're able to have the most you know access to solutions, right? How is that different the way that you all work from maybe some of your peers in the field that are doing policy research? Yeah, you would think it was intuitive and that it would make perfect sense to people, but it's actually um, not very common in national policy circles to take that kind of approach. And I think that has a lot to do with the history of who is running policy organizations and sort of the perspective that they bring to the table. I, you know, I think it's a fairly recent thing for sort of national policy organizations to really think about lived experience as expertise and to value lived experience as expertise on the same level as your master of public policy or you know whatever else you've done education-wise to earn your credentials or your work in government or those sorts of things. But we think, we agree with you that the people closest to the problem are the people closest to the solution and young people are very fond of saying nothing about us without us. And so we have really taken it on in our team to make a strong effort to bring young people into national policy conversations and Marlene can talk more about some ways that we do that. Thank you, Nia. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I, I agree with what Nia is saying. I think that uh, most other policy organizations are gravita- gravitating towards that, you know, type of engagement because it's hot and trending, you know. But, you know, we, on the other hand, have been very implicit about, you know, moving away from just a co-partnership, right, to more of like co-engagement and co-creation with young people. And so how do we do that? Well, again, we have to start from the source. So our source was we had conversations with a lot of these young adults that we've engaged with, whether it's through conferences or, you know, through other events and stuff. And we asked them, the main question was, how can we help you, really? It's not about us telling them or, you know, we stayed in our lane and we told them, like, you tell us, how can you use us as a resource? That was the main question. And so what the young people came back with us was a lot of things that didn't cost money, but required um, steady relationship building that required authentic engagement and, and partnership. So what they said was things like social capital, saying we need to be in the rooms where we're not. We need an opportunity for someone to allow us to be able to open and express what we actually think about these things because we don't often have you know the connections to be in these rooms and dismantle these systems of power right and so we took that very to heart and we said okay so we're going to create a strategy based off the feedback that they gave us and that strategy is now called young adult engagement strategy but sounds cooler in the acronym which is yes yes and so with that strategy really we've used it to as a framework and it embeds all the work that we do So part of the strategy, just briefly, is like mainly like three pillars, you know, the first being a millennial advisory network. All that really is, is having a pool where young people can connect with themselves and learn from each other because a lot of them are doing a lot of great work, but we tend to work in silos and we don't want to do that. We want to connect them. And so that that's the ultimate purpose of that millennial advisory network. And then we have a thing with called policy partners, which is the second pillar where we will intentionally work and go deeper, have a deeper dive with uh, youth-led organizations or young people who are leading those organizations. And we make sure to carry out in-depth, I guess you could call it, say, 
technical assistance. Um, and the last one being, yeah, just general technical assistance where we help them with a lot of the resources that they might not have capacity with, right? So like legislate, analyzing legislation, um, um, connecting them with our internal and our external networks. So it has brought a lot, a lot of great partnership and a lot of great relationships and friendships really with these young people at all different levels, you know, state, local, and nationally. And um, we are starting to see a lot of the fruit of that labor. And it takes time. That's the thing. People want to have these hot and trending things for six months or a year or two years or whatever the grand cycle is. But we have decided to take this framework and this, uh, this form of engagement at the core of our work. And that requires years and years of maintaining these relationships. And we're starting to see that. And we're really, we're really um, glad to see that young people are starting to like hit us up. Like the other day I had this young person like find me on Instagram and was like, it's like, yo, you were that girl at that workshop. Like you, you, that was so dope. Like, hey, I'm doing this thing with my community. Like, can you help me out? And I'm and the first question I'm thinking is like, how the heck did you find me on social media? But at the, at the same time, the fact that a young person can feel so comfortable to reach out to us outside of like professional email just shows you that this work advocacy is not, it's not a nine to five job, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have had times where we had to travel on the weekends, but it's our, it's what we enjoy doing um, aside from our personal and our work and you know so yeah I guess it's just, just a small sign of how young people are starting to like see us as a legitimate resource and they know that we're not going to smother them that we stay in our lane but we serve more as that technical resource in regards to policy and making systems change so it's really exciting. That was what was so excited about partnering with you all is just this idea that a lot of times at Frontline I feel like we're like pushing hard on the listen better to community and listen better to folks that are on the ground experiencing things and y'all like that's what y'all do um so it's really fun being a like co-thing and co-designing with you all can you just talk about how we approach this engagement and and sort of like what the approach was to the research process sure so you know even from when we were putting together the proposal which i think was before i technically met you other than by email you know i think that was one of the unique things about our proposal was that we said we want to start with what young women had to say and then also speak with nonprofit leaders and, you know, start from their perspective as opposed to us as quote-unquote experts coming in with our ideas and being out front. So we really did a lot of thinking about who and where, because obviously you can't cover everybody, particularly with the kind of intensive effort that we're making to have sort of in-depth conversations with a range of folks, but how could we talk to a range of young women of color from different parts of the country and sort of outside. We talked a little bit about being off the beaten track, not necessarily in the places where you hear from people all the time. So we ended up in Denver, Colorado, in Birmingham, Alabama, in Washington, D.C., Central Valley, California, and uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota and spoke to sort of a different demographic in each of those places, Latina young women, Native young women in an urban center, um, among American young women, African American young women, and then gender nonconforming young people. And then we just sort of put together questions about, um, you know, asking sort of about people's daily lives, what supports work for them, what doesn't work for them, what, you know, what they need, what advice they have for funders. And, um, you know, went out and sort of either went through existing partnerships or in some cases had to build new partnerships in order to make this all happen. And we're deeply appreciative of all of our partners that helped to make all of this happen. And so, you know, we had our conversation with young women, we did our analysis, we wrote our report, but something that was really important to us was to then circle back 
with the partners that we work with to see if they had any feedback for us on what we've done and what we produce. And <laughs> did we misrepresent anything? And at least in one instance, they were not afraid to come for our lives. They were like, these pictures you have in here, we are not in here. What's right. up with that? Like, fix that. Yep. So we're like, we gotta fix this. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think it was a little bit of a different kind of research process than like when people hear research, again, a lot of time they think of numbers, they think of you know crunching data or whatever. And it was absolutely that but in a different way than people think about and really thinking about bringing together qualitative and quantitative data because we also had a set of data from the foundation center that we analyzed to look at giving trends to young women of color to the extent that we could sort of suss that out of the data they have available. And then really looking at what young women were saying in comparison to what the, the quantitative data from the foundation center was saying and looking at where there was alignment or more often misalignment. So yeah, I want to tease that out some more. So Grantmakers for Girls of Color, who's who we, uh, the, the folks that asked us to do this research work, right? They're interested in increasing philanthropic support for girls of color in their communities. And so the easy kind of like easy trigger button most people go to is like, let's look at all the philanthropic dollars. Let's figure out how many of them are allocated towards uh, women and girls of color. And then let's get a number, right? And hopefully that's, you know, that's probably a low number. And we can really make a, the case around given that low number, that low percentage or whatever. That's why... This is why we should make the case around doing this work. What, why did you all choose to do that differently? Like, What was the approach? Yeah, I think what was really important there was actually our conversation with the young women because the approach that you just described really takes a competition framework, right? Where we're either comparing girls of color to boys of color or we're comparing girls of color to white girls. And we heard very clearly in our conversations with young women that that's not what this is about. It's sort of like, you can't help me if you're not also helping my brother, literally my brother in the same house, or my brother figuratively in the sense of my whole community. And by the same token, you can't just focus on young women and not think about our mothers, our grandmothers who also have needs that are sometimes the same as ours, our younger sisters who sometimes have needs that are the same as ours. So I think the young women really checked us, if you will, early on in the process by saying that we called it Now Without My Community. It was sort of a we all have to come up together philosophy and this competition framework that sort of gets imposed from the outside is not productive for anybody. So that's what sort of pushed us to the point of looking at what young women were asking for versus what's happening as opposed to trying to do some kind of comparison with some other group. What are some of the things that you, we found when we looked at those numbers? What are they asking for? What do young women want? And what are they getting access to? Yeah, I think the, the big picture answer to that question is the places where philanthropy is putting their dollars are not the places that young women say are most important for them. There's a lot of, or what investment there is, is in education. A lot There was a lot of investment in charter schools um, to a much Voter lesser extent. Like yeah, so a lot of stuff around civic engagement and voter registration, registration efforts and that sort of thing. And that is not what we heard <laughs> from young women. What we heard from them was a need for investment in housing, in the criminal justice system interactions, investment in ta addressing racism and discrimination head on, in education, but in issues of educational equity. They're raising the questions of disproportionate suspension and expulsion for young women of color, of underqualified teachers and uncertified teachers, of access to financial aid for first-time college, first-generation college students. And the philanthropic dollars, again, largely were not there. Some of those issues had no dollars that we could find. Some of them had clearly way less than you would need to address the problem. 
or if you had some investment in that area, like in mm -hmm. education, it wasn't in the type of issues where young women were saying that they need help. The same thing with housing, right? There was investment in things like shelters, but no investment in things that sort of get at the structural roots of those problems in terms of urban development, community development, those sorts of things. So there's really like two problems, right? One problem is there's just not enough money going to these issues, right? Yeah. Um, but then there's also the issue of even for areas and sectors that have funding, they're not actively thinking about women and girls, right? So there's a lot of funding happening in housing or in other areas that are important to, to girls of color that's not really taking explicitly their needs exactly mm -hmm. exactly yeah. and like just uh, touching a little bit on what we said earlier about hot and trending most people will think women and they would think stem and so and that is what what we heard that you had people you know who had to find ways to somehow incorporate some activity of STEM just to be able to receive some of these dollars, right? Because, and again, this goes back to disconnection, right? Disconnection from the people that you are advocating for, right? So young women weren't necessarily talking about STEM. They're, try they're trying to say that we need our basic needs to be met, really, because that's really what it is, housing, you know, all the things that Nia has listed. In contrast to what, you know, in social culture, people, we're getting bombarded with, you know, STEM and women, STEM and women, which is good. I'm not taking away from that, but I'm saying that if we need to look at really finding the needs that these young women need, it went back to their needs, uh, their basic needs. Yeah. You all did these interviews before, like the Me Too movement had really sparked the national conversation around mm -hmm. workplace harassment and, and, and sexual misconduct and those sorts of things. But that was something that seemed to come through really strongly in the interviews. Can you just talk about, it, uh, on the one hand, it seemed ironic we have these STEM programs that are saying we need to get more women in science and, mm -hmm. and, and technology fields, which we totally do, mm -hmm. but but maybe not dealing with the underlying issues that push women out of those fields, including mm -hmm. sexual harassment and, and, and lack of sort of protection in that way. Yeah, that was, a, that was a very strong finding. It was very much in the context of low-wage work and where um, you know young women of color are disproportionately likely to be engaged in low-wage work, whether it's the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry. We had quite a few young women who were sort of in contract industries as security guards or sort of different things like that, and really experiencing pretty bad instances of sexual harassment on an ongoing basis and not feeling like they had any recourse. And it was really interesting that all this surfaced before Me Too became such a prominent conversation, initially particularly with you know actors and actresses mm -hmm. and sort of in the Hollywood industry, when really that struggle is so much a part of the experience of women of color who are more likely to be in low-wage jobs, who are more likely to be in these industries where there are these disproportionate amounts of sexual harassment. Yeah, and they're experiencing the worst of it with the least amount of protection, mm -hmm. but they're not the famous celebrities or something that somebody pays exactly. attention to, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what are just some, just sort of as we're wrapping up, I just was wanting to think about what are some recommendations that you have for folks? I think there's both, we want folks to check out the reports. It's available. Um, the link will be in the description, uh, or the link is in the description uh, of, of this podcast. But wanted to also just think about broadly, like what are some recommendations you have for folks maybe for our, our audience who are mostly black folks um, who are interested in getting engaged around issues like this, what are some places they could start to better inform themselves around these issues? So yes, the report is definitely a great place to start. <laughs> you definitely want to take a look at that. I think one of the things, since your audience is primarily black people, I think there is a lesson that we could take from the young women about sort of all coming up together. And there really are 
some points of intersectionality across all of these different communities that we spoke to. Now, everybody wasn't dealing with exactly the same thing in the exactly same form, and we tried to be really explicit about who was experiencing what and you know where and those sorts of things. But at the same time, I think there's a real opportunity to reach out to other communities and sort of connect around some of these issues and get some movement through our collective strength and our collective power across communities. That's one thing I would say. From a policy perspective, we at CLASP have also produced a set of resources that are focused on young women of color that are really highlighting the structural barriers that they experience in all these different areas. And we're really working at CLASP this year to build out a policy agenda focused on young women of color and think about how different sectors where these issues are happening, education, low-wage work, housing, you know, even the public benefits context, how can we make sure that our policymaking takes a more explicit, pays more explicit attention to the needs and experiences of young women of color as we are doing the work? Yeah, no, and then another, I guess a short thing that your audience can do is really bring visibility to this issue, right? And so a lot of people, you know, um, you know, this, these issues have been going on for, you know, from my mother to my great grandmother, like women of color have always had to carry this, you know, this burden, right? You know, to be that stronghold in our communities and our families. And so this is not new, but it's not visible to audiences. And so just by reading it, the report, and understanding that a lot of these issues that young women of color are facing, they're not isolated, they're all connected. And, and there's a reason why. And so just making sure that your audience can read the report and understand the, the narrative because a lot of the narratives that are out there is that, oh, you know, women of color, they're just angry or, you know, they're just doing all these things. But no, like there's reasons behind that and those are structural barriers that we're facing. And, you know, a larger extent to that is because of a lot of the, the systems of power that have been in place. So really, yeah, just bringing visibility to this issue and sharing it with friends and seeing the way, hopefully, that this report is trying to push for that narrative change and visibility. And the last thing I'll add is the other sort of recommendation we're making to folks that want to get involved is to think about partnership within their own communities. So really identifying what are the organizations, the groups, who are the people in your community that are working with young women of color, who are working with black young women, and figure out how you can get involved and partner with those organizations, not, you know, jump in and take over, <laughs> but really truly partner with and find out how you could really be an ally to them in their work. So I guess I guess the last question or, or thing I'd love to talk to you about is just as sort of women of color who are doing this work, obviously this is work that's important to you from like a head standpoint and like all the incredible knowledge that y'all bring to this work, but also from a heart standpoint, like how has this project kind of impacted you in terms of the conversation that you've been able to have or had to have in some cases as you're thinking of reflecting back on this process? Well, I, I can start, I guess. I would say for me personally, you know, one grows up in their environment and goes through all of these structural barriers. And sometimes because you live in an isolated community, which a lot of these young women, these young women have, sometimes you feel like it is only your community or it is only yourself that you're dealing with these issues. But when we really start to look at the larger scale and you look at what other young women of color are experiencing, you realize that it's a common shared struggle, right? And being able to talk to these young women and see myself in them, it just, it's very encouraging to know that regardless of the issues that we're facing, when young women were just, were, uh, one of the questions we asked young women was, how would you describe yourself? And 
across the board, young women use personal descriptives, like strong personal descriptors to say, like, I'm strong, I'm resilient, right? Because regardless of the issues that we face, we are still, you know, moving forward and we know that we're going to continue to fight and, you know, just bringing justice to their voices in this work. It, it just felt really empowering to me as, as a woman of color to be able to not only talk about this work and, and do the, you know, do the research in the work, but, you know, being able to also identify with that and have that proximity to these people and these young women, I mean, and being able to really make sure that that is being brought up and you're you're being a part of that, you know. I never would have thought as a young girl that I could be able to write something about young women of color, right? And so now we're at this, at that place where, you know, I'm here with my colleague, you know, and we're having these workshops and we're talking about young women of color in these very predominantly white settings and we're leading the work, which, you know, it could be something very small, but it's not because most oftentimes these issues are not led by us. And so that was very empowering. That was really a beautiful thing to see. And I will say two things as someone who is young at heart, but maybe not so young anymore. <laughs> I think I was really inspired, again, by the connections across communities. Those Hmong young women, I'm like, we would have been friends in college, right? <laughs> it's sort of like the, the, the level of wokeness and just sort of just fire that these young women came with across all these different settings, I think was really exciting for me to a related point. I feel like when I was younger, I would experience things or I would sense things and didn't really have the vocabulary to name it in a way that some of these young women at least did. And I think that being able to name what's happening to you and understand it from a systemic perspective at a younger age is, is really really sort of changes your perspective and how you view your experiences and sort of how you put things into context. And so I have a daughter who is just turned eight years old. And so I definitely, in raising her, try not to shy away from naming things and naming systems when she's running up against them and giving her that vocabulary from a young age to really understand sort of you know, in an age-appropriate way, but to understand that there's more than just your individual experience here. You're part of a collective experience as well, because I really think that young women can draw strength from that. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of the Black Future Manifesto. Thank you again to Nia West Bay and Marlene Mendoza of the Center of Law and Social Policy. Thanks to Grantmakers for Girls of Color for asking for such necessary context to put the funds in the hands of Black and Brown youth that need it. To download the toolkit, go to bit.ly slash start from the ground up. That is bit.ly slash start from the ground up. You can also find the audio murals or the interviews done by the young people as part of the research for the kit on this website. To keep up with Grantmakers for Girls of Color, follow the hashtags G, the numeral 4GC, and Fun Girls of Color. This episode was brought to you by Frontline Solutions, a Black-owned consulting firm working on the front lines of change, see what they did there, within the nonprofit and philanthropic sector to help their clients define goals, execute plans, and evaluate the impact of their work. Again, thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and follow us at Black Future Pod on SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter, and the Gram. That is B-L-A-C-K-F-U-T-U-R-E-P-O-D. Share, subscribe. I hope you like this episode. Look out for two before the end of the month. I'm your host, Mariah M, signing off. Thank you.